This is Kevin from the Red Caps Podcast, and you are listening to Tale of the Manticore. The following podcast is intended for a mature audience. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome back to Tale of the Manticore, Season 2. Like the creature from which it takes its name, Tale of the Manticore is a mashup, a crossbreeding between two different species of storytelling. Here, you will find the unpredictability of old-school RPG paper and dice games with the storycraft of a dark fantasy novel. No character is sacred, and no character will be spared if the dice decide their fate is at hand. According to lore, the tale of a manticore is barbed with cruel iron spikes. There will be much pain in the days ahead. Last time on Tale of the Manticore. In the last chapter, we followed the companions as they leave the Dunwich Cidery Company and move south through the city. They're headed for the Church of the Sacred Flame. They're going there to receive a new job given to Yellowfly that morning by Lord Rabbit. On the way, they see evidence all around them that things are getting worse. Silmoral is practically under martial law, with curfews and restricted movement. The City Watch has been busy, too. In the half hour it takes to reach Sadal's church, the PCs pass a display of executed city folk. They also find an old man cowering in an alley after a random beating. The feeling of oppression is palpable, but luckily, they reach their destination unhindered. In the church's rectory, they speak with Brother Terragrim, not Sister Ernest, as one might expect. He charges them with the retrieval of a relic. This item is nothing less than the sword of, arguably, Camertine's greatest hero of days past. It is the Silverthorn, the sword of Aylward, the paladin who slew King Vincis and himself became ruler. In order to retrieve this relic, the party is assigned a cleric to accompany them. Novice Bazu will carry the holy sword once it is being collected. The companion's job is to protect him while getting there and coming back. The episode closes as the party makes their way to Mirpool with its impressive statue of the Paladin King in front of the church. Also in front of the church is a portly bald-headed man of the cloth, closing up his trinket stall for the day. Although he smiles and waves, there's something that doesn't feel quite right about him. Chapter 38, Part 1, Day 115 Evening. Party status. Yellowfly. 30 of 30 hit points. Shawnee. 19 of 19. Jace. 26 of 26. Catsbane. 12 of 12. Spells available. Catsbane has memorized Magic Missile, Read Languages, Mirror Image, and Invisibility. After checking into the Turning Bull Inn, the companions spent the evening sitting in the main room in front of the fire. After such a long walk, it felt good to relax and, more than anything else, get warm. They'd spent three gold pieces for their rooms. Novice Bazu was given his own, while Shawnee and Yellowfly shared one, and Jason Catsbane another. Dawn, the proprietress, sat with them and chatted with Yellowfly after bringing each of them a plate of salted eel and a bowl of broth. The Turning Bull did not have a proper dining area, and so the companions sat and ate with the bulls on their laps. 
An hour or so after the companion's arrival, Dawn got up to register a late-arriving guest. It was a farm woman who pulled back her snow-covered hood to reveal a mop of bright red hair and a heavily freckled face. She moved with a pronounced limp and, while trying to navigate past Catsbane to reach the stairs, stumbled against his chair so that the mage was forced to spring up and catch her to prevent her from falling. Whispered apologies were exchanged, and when Catsbane sat down again, a little red-faced for the awkward exchange, the others were smiling at him. Saving damsels, are we, Catsbane? teased Shawnee. Jace looked like he was about to laugh, but Catsbane silenced him with a stern look and a finger to the lips. He didn't want the woman, who was only halfway up the stairs now, to think they were laughing at her. The farm woman left the warm and jovial company behind as she reached the top of the stairs and entered the single hall that bisected the upper floor of the turning bowl. There were six rooms here, each clearly marked, not by a number, but by a little barnyard animal painted on the door by the handle. To her left was a cockerel, to the right a cat. When she had written her name in the ledger, she had taken notice of the names above hers and which rooms they were in. She noted that two of the rooms held two occupants each, but one of them had a single guest. The cockerel and the cat were both double occupied, so she moved past them up the hall. Here to the left was the sheep, the single occupied room. To the right, the pig, her own room. There were two more rooms down the hall, probably a cow and a bull, she guessed. But those rooms were empty and not of any interest to her. She turned and put the iron key into the lock, twisted it and heard a click. Then she opened the door to her room and entered. The moment her door was closed, she relaxed her concentration. Her tightly curled, bright red hair straightened and turned to mousy brown-gray. Her freckles faded, replaced by slightly saggy and wrinkled skin. Her green eyes turned brown. Without the slightest hint of a limp, she strode across the small room. Flinging her small bag to the ground, she laid down heavily on the bed and closed her eyes. She needed to sleep and replenish her energies. Tomorrow, she would be up early. It was going to be a busy day. As many of you will have already guessed, both the traveling farmwoman and the paunchy bald priest outside the church gates are actually Romola, illusionist and apprentice to Night Mother. Romola wears the priest disguise often and is accepted in Mirpool as Father Darman, a harmless old man with a soft voice who ekes out a living selling prayer trinkets on occasion outside the gates of the church. The church has no objection to his presence and sees him the same way everyone else does, as a sweet-faced man who loves children and doesn't bother anybody. Father Darman has been spending a lot more time outside the church recently, waiting for the party to arrive, as her mentor said they would. Now she has followed them into the turning bowl. Whether she intends to do immediate harm or is just keeping an eye on them remains to be seen. Actually, I'm not sure what she intends to do. Not yet, anyway. Before I can make that determination, I have to update Romola's character sheet. It's been a while, and as the PCs have grown in power, so has she. Okay, we last saw her stats in episode 13. That's when she hit level 4. So now she would be, let's see, level 6. Let's update her character sheet right now. 2d4 for new hit points. Yikes, that is a 4 on each die. I remember rolling really well for the first four levels, and now I'm adding eight points, bringing her max HP to a whopping 23. That's just bananas high for a magic user. Her AC remains at 11. Or does it? There's a chance for stat bonuses. I'll do these rolls off mic and spare you the slog. Hang on. Be right back.
Okay, I'm back and the end result is a modest plus one to her intelligence score. Her updated stats are Strength 8, Intelligence 12, Wisdom 9, Dexterity 15, Constitution 9, Charisma 12. Of course, she's going to get new spells, too. She already knows the following. Auditory Illusion, Glamour, Improved Phantasmal Force, and Blur. Now, at 6th level, she'll get two more spells, both of level 3. As usual, I'm going to roll them at random. Rolling a d12. Okay, I've got a 7. And again, 11. The spells are Paralyzation and Suggestion. Interesting. In order to appear first as Father Darman, and then as the redhead farm woman, Romola will have already used two glamour spells, so only her second and third level spells remain available to her. Oh, and speaking of that glamour spell, I'd be remiss if I didn't address something. I've misused the spell a little thus far. Technically, the caster can only maintain a glamour for a handful of minutes, for the spell description in Old School Essentials. The Unearthed Arcana, remember that book? had a cantrip called Glamour that lasted for eight hours and allowed a change in appearance from masculine to feminine. So maybe that's what I had in mind. Maybe I just went with what I thought was a cool idea. At any rate, I don't think it gives her any special or unfair advantage to adjust the spell and say that it can be maintained for hours, but it only passes the scrutiny of children and simple-minded folk, at least outside of the 2d6 minutes plus 2 minutes per caster level stipulated in the book. I'm certainly no stickler for rules as written, but I thought I should probably address this just in case it was sticking in anyone's craw. Alright, back to the narrative. Chapter 38 Part 2A Day 115 Late Night Party Status The party's status is unchanged. Novice Bazu took a few minutes to wake up to the sound and open the door. He blinked into the lamplight beyond, and when his puffy eyes adjusted, there was Catsbane at the threshold. Catsbane, is something amiss? Brother, may I come in? replied the other in a whisper. By instinct, Bazu dropped his voice to a whisper too. Of course, and please, if I am to call you by your chosen name, you must do the same for me. Please, call me Bazu. He opened the door the rest of the way to let the young mage in. Catsbane followed. Brother Bazu, then. Catsbane's face was troubled when he entered the little room. He walked to the other side, taking a seat on the only chair. Bazu's small leather traveling pack was tucked under it. The cleric closed the door when Catsbane motioned for him to do so, and then came to sit on the edge of the bed, leaning forward and searching the other's face. Whatever is the matter, my friend? I can't sleep. I'm worried about what we are here to do. I was hoping you might say a prayer for me. Bazu, though surprised by their request, readily agreed, and improvised a lengthy prayer over their mission. So let it be, he concluded after a few minutes. Upon the last syllable of the prayer, there was a noise in the hall from beyond the door. A creak of wood, as though someone was standing there and had shifted their weight. Catsbane stiffened at the sound, and Bazu's eyebrows shot up. With a finger held to his lips, Catsbane inclined his head toward the door, indicating that Bazu should go and have a look. The cleric complied, sneaking over to the door and opening it, ever so cautiously. But nobody was there. Bazu stuck his head into the dark and silent hallway. Nothing. He pulled back into the room and returned to the edge of the bed. 
Katsubei now leaned in close to him, and Bazu turned his head so the other man might whisper in his ear. Listen carefully, said Katsubei, making as little sound as possible. Bazu felt hot breath on his ear. The two men and the woman you travel with will betray you. Bazu began to pull away and was about to protest vocally, but Katsubei cut him off. Shh, listen. They wish to steal the sword, Bazu. But I am on your side. Listen to me. I have a suggestion as to how we can beat them at their own game. Wander Middle-Earth in the Lore of the Rings podcast, where we wander the world of J.R.R. Tolkien. In the Lore of the Rings podcast, we explore the inspiring tales and rich mythology of Tolkien's Lord of the Rings Legendarium, and connect it to the movies and the new Rings of Power series. Available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and more. You'll find a new lore-packed episode every Thursday. Come wander and not be lost with the Lore of the Rings podcast. Chapter 38 Part 2B Day 115 Late Night Party Status The party status is unchanged. Romola wasn't sure which one of them would answer, possibly the woman, but there was also a good chance it would be. The latch clicked and the door opened to reveal the figure of a slight man beyond. Romola suppressed a smile. If the mage had been the one to open the door, the gambit would have been over before it began. She would have had to kill him, of course, and figure things out from there. Well, it had been a gamble, and it had paid off so far. She had an oil lamp in one hand and a little dagger in the other. The dagger went back into her pocket when she saw the face. Catsbane, is something amiss? Now she had a name. Brother, may I come in? She replied, reasoning that this man was the cleric of Sadal Nightmother had warned her of. He looked the part. Of course. And please, if I am to call you by your chosen name, you must do the same for me. Please, call me Bazu. Now she had another name. The door opened the rest of the way, and Romola entered. Brother Bazu, then. She scanned the room in the dim lamplight and saw what she was looking for, conveniently situated under a chair. She strode across the floor and took a seat. Bazu closed the door and followed her, sitting on the edge of the bed. When they were face to face, Romola made up a story about being worried about their mission and unable to sleep. Since she had no idea what the mission was about, she was forced to use vague language. But, luckily, the cleric proved to be very generous with information, detailing several steps of their plan, including the ultimate goal of retrieving the sword of Aylward. Romola struggled to keep her face calm as the priest spoke his prayer. Her mind raced with a dozen different possible schemes. Finally, she settled on one and cast her spell of audible glamour, creating a woody creak on the far side of the door. So let it be. When Bazu got up to investigate, she slipped a tiny bag containing a charm, a sawyer's thumb, into the cleric's leather bag. By the time he returned, she had worked out the rest of her story. She pulled him close to whisper in his ear. Listen carefully. The two men and the woman you travel with will betray you. They wish to steal the sword, Bazu. But I am on your side. Listen to me. I have a suggestion as to how we can beat them at their own game. Romola has not been sent to kill the PCs, but to learn about them, and perhaps hinder their success if she can. If this part of the story ends with combat, 
Romola must have made a misstep. She's tough, but she can't handle an entire group on her own. Her modus operandi is to deceive, beguile, and influence, not to fight. She's also an improviser, building her strategy as she goes. She has already learned the names of Catsbane and Bazu, and she knows why the party is in Mirpool. It all makes sense. Night Mother would have a vision to warn them of something coming to retrieve a holy relic. And the Silverthorn, the Sword of Aylward, is nothing to sneeze at. Now, if Romola could steal the Silverthorn, or somehow prevent the companions from having it, that would be a huge victory for her and for the powers she serves. I wonder, is there any chance that Bazu might be onto her? He has a wisdom score of 14, that's pretty high. He's a perceptive individual. Still, he's not expecting anything like this. Furthermore, it's dark, and he's just woken up and must be a little cotton-headed. Fortuitously, Catsbane barely spoke for the whole journey to Mirpool, so the one thing that might have given Romola away, her voice, is not as big a factor as it otherwise would have been, and her attempt to disguise it through whispering might be unnecessary. Romola has no idea how lucky she is. I'll rule that Bazu can make a saving throw versus spells, with his wisdom bonus but at disadvantage, to see through the disguise or to at least wake up the next day feeling suspicious. The numbers on the dice will tell us which. Okay, a third level cleric saves versus spells on a 15 or better. Add in his wisdom bonus and he'll need two 14s or better on 2d20. Here we go, the first roll. A 13. He fails the check right away. No second roll is required. Now, before we return to the story, I'm going to make Bazu attempt a second saving throw. This one, on a single d20, is to see if he'll be affected by Romola's spell of suggestion. I bet you saw that one coming. Once again, he needs a 14. Here's the roll. I got an 8. Hook, line, and sinker. Looking at the rulebook, it seems like I'll be making some alterations to this spell as well. And once again, I'll be tweaking the duration. Boy, the rules as written really cut the legs out from under the illusionist class. Anyway, now's not the time for a rant. The original spell goes like this. The caster gives a suggestion of up to two sentences that proposes a course of action to the subject. It has a range of 30 feet, must be in a language that the subject understands, and cannot cause obvious harm. Obvious harm. This is pretty vague language, but I'll take that to mean that the caster cannot suggest that someone stab themselves in the heart or jump off a bridge. The victim of the spell is allowed a saving throw, and a minus two penalty is applied if the suggestion is worded in a way as to sound reasonable. All of that is fine by me, but as with the glamour spell, it's the duration I'm having a little bit of issue with. The rules give the spell 40 minutes plus 40 per level. For Romola, that would be, hang on, math is not my strong suit, 280 minutes or 4.6 hours. That's not long enough to be as useful as a third level spell should be. Arguably, the spell Charm Person is a better spell, and that's a first-level spell. Other editions of D&D give the spell a duration of one hour per caster level, or up to eight hours. Hmm. I'm overriding the OSC rules and upping the duration to eight hours. That still leaves a risk of the spell running out earlier than Romola would like, but it doesn't nerf her completely. Since her casting the spell has introduced a ticking clock, I need to set a definite start time. I'll say that Romola made her visit to Brother Bazu at about 3.45 a.m. and cast the spell at exactly 4 a.m. So it will expire at 12 noon. Chapter 38, Part 3, Day 116, 8 o'clock a.m. Four hours remain on the suggestion spell. Party status. 
the party's status is unchanged. Catsbane met the others at breakfast, looking a little better than he had the day before. He smiled at Dawn and complimented her on the comfort of her beds as she handed him a bowl of pottage and a bread rusk, something that was common fare in Mirpool, but a novelty to Silmarillions. To Bazu and the others, he said little more than a whispered good morning. Nobody was surprised. He had been nearly silent the day before, and clearly he was still not interested in talking. Yellowfly arranged with Dawn to check out after the lunchtime meal, telling her that in the meantime, he and his companions had a little business to conduct in town. He gave her no details, and she asked for none. When everyone had finished their breakfast, they got up, dusted the rusk crumbs off their laps, and made ready to leave. Jace, Yellowfly, and Shawnee wore weapons and armor under their traveling cloaks. Packs and other mundane equipment was left behind, locked in their rooms. Outside, it was a bright and sunny day. There was accumulated snow on the ground that dazzled in the bright morning light. The inn was not far from the town square and the church, and they covered the distance after a few minutes' walk. They passed by the statue of Aylward and approached the church gates. The priest who had been there the evening before with his cart full of trinkets was not present. As there was no service this morning, the gates were locked. Bazu rang a bell to summon a cleric from within. While they waited, they had time to admire the temple from the outside. It was a circular building made of dark stone. Lower-level windows were slits only, giving the place the appearance of a watchtower up to a height of about 15 feet. Above that, round, shield-sized stained-glass windows circumscribed the domed roof. From the inside, Yellowfly and Bazu knew. They channeled and colored light onto a central point where the altar stood. The effect was quite marvelous. A young woman, perhaps in her mid-twenties, emerged from the wide double doors beyond the gate. She was dressed in robes of heavy white linen and had curly dark hair worn in a loose ponytail. A large key ring was gripped in her hand and she sorted through it as she approached. When she reached the gate, she exchanged a few words with Novice Bazu and then opened the large padlock. The companions passed through before she swung it closed behind them and refastened the lock. Then, they followed her up the path, through the doors, and into the temple proper. The Temple of Sadal was a single space on the first floor. There were pews arranged so that the spaces between them were like spokes of a wheel. All the pews faced inward at the altar. This central feature was an asymmetrical slab of unmasoned white stone, atop which sat a candle the length and width of a man's forearm, resting in a squat silver dish. There were no other people in the room. It was silent and serene and holy. Shawnee and Jace gasped at how the light from the outside, especially on a clear sunny day such as this, beamed through the porthole-like stained glass windows that ringed the vault and, filtered into a multitude of prismatic rays, lanced down directly onto the altar. Shawnee had never seen anything so remotely beautiful as this in her life, and she felt her breath catch as she stepped inside and the doors were closed behind them. Novice Bazu whispered something to the attendant cleric, and she replied, Of course, wait right here, before leaving them to wait while she collected a senior to speak with them. A bald-headed man wearing a robe of ochre emerged from the stairs the attendant cleric had gone down. These stairs were separated from the main room only by a low brass railing that followed the curvature of the wall. In addition to his dark yellow robes, the man wore a heavy silver medallion around his neck. In one hand, he carried a lit candle of white. Despite having big bushy eyebrows, his face was mild, showing no emotion. His mouth was a flat line. 
His eyes were clear, and his gait was steady. As he approached, he addressed Bazu, ignoring the others. Be welcome to the house of the Lord of Fire and Truth and the guardians of his light, both alive and dead. What can I do for you, brother? This must have been a formality, for Bazu replied in an equally stiff voice. By your leave, I bring word from Her Holiness, the Most Reverend Sister Araness. The priest relaxed and clapped a hand on Bazu's skinny shoulder. It has been a while, Brother Bazu. You look well. How is Her Grace faring, and what news of the great city? You should come and see for yourself, Reverend. Oh, no, replied the elder cleric, now wearing a jocular smile. The city is no place for a man like me. Oh? Why is that? I'm a simple man with no skill for politicking. I should not survive a month in Samoral. <laughs> he chuckled. Now, Sister Therese tells me you bear a letter from the High Priestess. Is that so? While Yellowfly and the others looked on in awkward silence, Bazu dug the scroll case bearing Araness's letter out of his little bag. He did not realize it, but his fingers brushed past the little rat-pelt pouch Romola had hidden in it the night before. Here it is, Reverend. Shall we give you some time to look it over? We can return at your leisure. I am at leisure now. There is no need to go and come back. He passed his candle to Bazu as he accepted the scroll case, pulled free the stopper, and fished the roll of parchment out with an index finger. He unfurled it and held it a little distance away from his face, as though his eyesight was beginning to fail. Bazu and his companions waited patiently, enjoying the beauty of the church's interior while the other man read. The elder cleric's bushy eyebrows began to rise when he was halfway through and continued to rise until he had finished. Folding the parchment twice and putting it in his pocket, he said, Well, well, this is unexpected. I shall leave you to your business, Brother Bazu. First, you will allow me to say a blessing over you and your retinue. The senior cleric's smile was gone, and he was looking at Yellowfly and the others with hard eyes. By all means, Reverend, we accept thy blessing with humble gratitude. Bazu exchanged the candle for the empty scroll case, which he replaced in his bag. The elder cleric held up the lit candle, closed his eyes, and began to pray. Holy Sadal, watch over our conference and let it be known if any here bears the church ill intent or holds malice in their heart. Although Bazu and the others were unfazed, Catsbane shifted nervously on his feet. This was no blessing. Praise Sadal. Inside Bazu's bag, in the tiny pouch made of rat's pelt, a jumble of thumb bones began to twitch and, somehow, curled into a hook as though they were still a part of someone's living hand. Thanks very much for listening to Tale of the Manticore. If you like what you've heard and wish to support the show, there are four ways you can help. You can recommend the show online or to friends. You can like and retweet episode announcements on Twitter. You can pick up any of my offerings on DriveThruRPG. And finally, you can rate or review the show on your podcatcher of choice. Thanks very much to everyone who supported the show. I'd like to read one of your great reviews right now. This one is from iTunes, and it was posted by Filler Willer. Filler Willer writes, I played D&D starting with the basic set, then moving on to AD&D way back in my youth. The storytelling here mixed with the actual gameplay really brings back fond memories of those days of long ago. Thank you. And thank you right back, Filler Willer. When I started the pod over three years ago, that quest to rediscover that lost feeling from my youth was what drove me forward. And you know what? It still does. Thanks so much for coming on the journey into the past with me. Thanks are also due to my wonderful voice talent. This episode has three voice actors in it. In order of appearance, they are 
Andrew Fling, one of the members of the excellent Tumbledye team, playing novice Bazu. In the role of Romola, who in turn is playing Catsbane, welcome back Yasmin from the Dungeons & Dragons Podcast UK. Check out Yasmin's show at the Dungeons & Dragons Podcast Team UK. WordPress.com. Finally, Mike gives voice to the Elder Cleric of Sidal. Thanks very much, Andrew, Yasmin, and Mike. For those of you who use socials, please follow me on Twitter at Manticore Tale, or if you prefer Instagram, I'm at Tale of the Manticore Podcast. My email is taleofthemanticore at gmail.com. I also keep a blog at taleofthemanticore.blogspot.com where I post show notes, art, character sheets, maps, and other stuff. The story will continue on the next episode of Tale of the Manticore, the story where chaos rolls. Dungeon Dads is a podcast of four dads. John, Tim, Sam, and me, Tom, playing an epic game of D&D. But it's really a story of three mismatched heroes. Jonas Silverwind, a highborn wizard. I am going to cast Mage Ama. Abel Rockbrother, a wayward cleric. Tempest, will you please, in your infinite wisdom, help me to kill these men? And Phil Near Omajira, a warlock who's made a pact with a higher power. I owe it my life. I guess you had to be there. Come for the epic adventure. This army of barbarians in fur and leather, they're rushing the war wagon. Stay for the dad jokes. So, uh, <laughs> here's the whole fellas. So, quoth the queen. And 80s references. People are people. So why should it be that you two should get along so awfully? Find us at DungeonDads.com or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. Hey, not bad. Uh, can we do one more take where you pretend like you actually like the show? Uh, yeah. <laughs> 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 <laughs>